Hello, listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection, to find the person you can rely on, the one that's there every week, month, or year, and always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With ACAST podcast ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie, and avoid those red flags and time wasters. Your ads can communicate with them in the most intimate way possible. A one-on-one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym, or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today was a child prodigy, passing exams usually taken by senior high school students in primary school, and completed her A-levels, the equivalent of the high school certificate in Australia, at the age of 11. At 15, she started a degree at Oxford, becoming the youngest ever graduate with a master's degree at 19 years old. On top of this, she speaks six languages. She's now a computer scientist with a passion to inspire the next generation of young women in STEM so that we can revolutionise women's representation in science and technology. I'd like to welcome Anne-Marie Imaphodon to my digital studio today. Now, hearing that quick biography, our listeners are probably saying to themselves, wow, she's one of a kind. And of course, there's no one quite like you, but your three younger siblings were also child geniuses. What was going on in your family? It's obviously a very special one. (laughs) It was a lot of competition (laughs) with no age taken into consideration in that competition. (laughs) So anything I can do, all of them believe they can do better. And was there any sense in your family that, do you know, girls, boys, there was a difference between levels of attainment or ambition? None at all. And I think I think a big part of that was the fact that the boy didn't come until the very end. So my, my brother is one of the younger siblings. He actually came as twins with a sister. So we kind of didn't really have the boys to to compare ourselves to for, for quite a while, actually. Even now, no, no difference. And tell me about your parents, what they did and whether they encouraged this amazing childhood development. So I think with my parents, the, the biggest thing that they did was that they, they just didn't say no. So any of these things, any other parent might be worried about the consequences or might say, you know, no, that's what I imagine that child could do or not. But with them, they just said, you know what, if, if you want to give it a go, give it a go. If you think you can do better than her, then let's have it. 
really. <laughs> but neither of them, so my father is a trained ophthalmologist and my mum is a linguistics major and kind of teacher. So maths wasn't necessarily really either of their things, but allowing us to try things. Like as, as long as we weren't in harm's way, they were incredibly supportive. And your father migrated from Nigeria to the UK. What about that sense of race? How did that play out in your life? I don't know. It's an interesting one because I've never, I've never not, I guess, had the race that I have. So they, they migrated over and I think we definitely were a Nigerian household. So we still ate the food and church was a big part of life growing up. So we, we definitely had those kind of hallmarks of, of a Nigerian family, but in England. I guess the other thing is that, you know, for Nigerians, education is also incredibly important. So I think they maybe felt like they hit the jackpot. <laughs> With a series of kids who were like, "Yeah, I want to learn that. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give that a go." So that definitely, definitely plays into things now as well. And what about the kids at school? I mean, whilst you might have had this sense of competition and learnings, you know, the thing in your family with your peers in school, were they looking at you, going, "Wow, you know, she's really the girly swat," to use the sort of terminology that kids would pin on each other? Quite. So my, my experience is quite unique in that it was always a positive for me and it was always something that I felt I could use to my advantage. So there wasn't name calling. It was more kind of I was the special one that kind of understood things. And so, you know, I could be class clown and talk to all my mates and do whatever I wanted in the classroom, knowing that if the teacher ever said, Amory, what did I just say? I'd be able to say it back to them and possibly deliver it better than they had. So I think it was one of those things that I always used to my, to my advantage. I remember even in secondary school, so I already had my maths GCSE, and they still made me sit in maths lessons for whatever reason. And my maths teacher would set assignments or set tasks for people at the front of the classroom, and you'd have kind of quiet time to work through them. And she'd have a queue of people going to ask her for help at the front of the classroom. And I'd be sat next to my best friend at the back of the classroom with my own queue of people coming to ask me for help. I reckon every teacher would want one of you in their class, halving the workload. That's not, okay. Not all of them. <laughs> not all of them appreciated it. <laughs> but I think I definitely converted it into free lunches and all sorts of things from my peers. So it was definitely a positive for me to have. And let's talk about these GCSEs. For the Aussies, that's the General Certificate of Secondary Education. And students are normally mm. 16 when they sit those exams. So it's the year 11 equivalent here in Australia. Mm -hmm. But you were aged 11 when you did that. And then you became the youngest girl to ever pass A-level computing. Where did the passion for tech, for computers, where did that come from? Because you wouldn't have seen many female role models in that area as you were growing up. So it was definitely my thing. And I think it's, I always tell this story of remembering being four, like one of my earliest memories was me on the computer, on my dad's computer that he was using for research, for medical research, typing the story of Little Red Riding Hood into Word. And it was probably gibberish because I was four, but changing her hood from red to purple. And that was my version of the story. And that was what I wanted to run with. And I remember being able to save that in that computer, I think it was Word 3.0 at that point. And then coming back to it the next day, that was my story inside the computer. So I think for me, I'm a very creative person, but I, I'm not necessarily creative in the sense that I necessarily create music or I paint. But for me, technology has always been that really logical canvas to 
create things and make things on. So, you know, in, in learning maths and learning ICT and all the rest of it and, and doing that when I was 10, it was something that I loved the fact that, you know, if I use the same piece of code, the computer is going to make the same thing. And it doesn't matter that I'm little Amory from London, it's going to show up on that web page the same way as it would if I was, you know, a real developer on the other side of the world that, that had built that website. So it's always been the creativity and the logic and the fact that if you do the same thing, if you write the right piece of code, it will do that. It will follow what you've done and it's incredibly logical. So that's what I've always loved about it. I want to learn more about the logic. I want to learn more about how things work. And maths is so true in a way that real life isn't. It follows a lot of rules and a lot of logic that real life doesn't. (laughs) Just what I've learned as an adult. So here we go. (laughs) I think you're right about that. There is a beauty and a simplicity in the fact that numbers always come out the same and and life doesn't. Mm -hmm. When you were finding this interesting, intriguing, you were good at it, were there any role models that you looked out to the world and said, you know, if I'm really good at this at school and then I'm really good at this at university, I could be like, is there a person? Yeah. So looking back, I think the only kind of not having, you know, the internet as in the way that we have it at the moment, I think the main person that I was aware of was Tim Berners-Lee himself. And the fact that I spent so much time on the web, like picking up HTML snippets and building my own web pages and just understanding how it worked and kind of getting to see elements of you know, that ability to share information and connect people and it being a worldwide thing. I think I was always struck by the fact that he was British and I was also British and he was this physicist that had made this thing that impacted everyone. And I always knew that that was something I wanted to do. So I, I didn't necessarily think about it in terms of university or anything like that at that point. But that was definitely a thing. It was, you know, this is this is a British innovation and why can't I be that British innovator? Mm-hmm. And you went on, as we've discussed, to Oxford, but you were really young when you were there. How was that experience? I mean, you would have been in a male-dominated field. You would have been years younger than the people you were studying alongside. How do you remember that? I was used to it. Yeah? (laughs) I mean, even now, there's so many things. I'm the youngest person in the room making whatever decision and influencing whatever. So I'm definitely, I think I've always been used to being younger. I think at Oxford, I was probably, the age gap was a lot smaller than it has been since as well. But I I loved it. I, I really enjoyed being in that environment. I was never made, fully made to feel like other in, in those spaces. And I think with Oxford as well, you have your college system, you have a you know, small amount of people in your college that are studying the same subject. And so actually it, it felt more close-knit, it felt more intimate rather than me feeling like the outsider. And also in my college, we had more girls doing maths than we had boys, actually, funnily enough. So it was only in computer science stuff that I was in the minority, but was never made to feel like that minority, whether it be gender, whether it be race, whether it be age, all those kinds of things. I think it's, it's interesting being somewhere like Oxford because... It is such an intriguing cross-section of society, which meant that often there were times when I would be the odd one in the room only because I wasn't the only person that was a bell ringer. And before I went to Oxford, I didn't realise that bell ringing was even a thing. I I know famously in East London, we have bow bells and I never thought about the human beings that might be ringing those bow bells. But in in college, my senior tutor was the, the fellow in charge of the Oxford University Bell Ringing Society. And a couple of the other people in my course in my college were members of that society. And it's so funny looking back, you know, you might think being a kid from East London that 
not having a yacht is what is going to make you stand out in somewhere like Oxford. If it's bell ringing, I'm kind of okay with that. The uh, Australian here has learned something I never knew, that bell ringing was a thing that posh people did. (laughs) It's a a revelation for me. Thank you. (laughs) I don't think we run to uh, lots of bell ringing here. I stand to be corrected and no doubt someone will email in and let me know if I've got that wrong. I'm sure there are very well-established bell ringing societies across Australia with great heritage. Every day, there we go. Every day is a school day. That's right, every day is. Now, you went on to forge a career in tech and you worked for some very well-known leading businesses, Goldman Sachs, Hewlett-Packard, Deutsche Bank. How gendered did you find those environments or was the main difference for you this age difference that you were often in rooms with people, you know, 10, 20, 30 years older than you? So I think, I think ultimately across my career, I still enjoyed being promoted, being listened to, having positions of responsibility to the point that I was still kind of, for a lot of it, blind to that kind of odd one out or that other status that I occupied. And I think it's one of those things where looking back, if I'm sat in a boardroom, I'm looking out across the table and kind of we're talking the tech and that's kind of what's distracting me. It's never dawned on me to think and look around the table and say, you know, if I was looking in on this meeting, there'd be one person that kind of sticks out like a sore thumb versus everybody else. So I think it was one of those ones where it was only I I ended up actually speaking at a conference that was for women in tech in the States on behalf of, of one of the companies that I worked for. And it was being in that environment that was all female and highly technical that I realised what I'd been missing out on my entire life, because this wasn't just something that was about industry. This was about my educational experience and, and everything that I'd had up until then. Even when I'd go to the computer market to buy bits and bobs kind of on discount or on sale or start negotiating, it was always me, this kind of little girl teenager trying to negotiate with with blokes and not really realising that I was the only young teenager in these spaces. So it was only being in an all-female technical environment that it finally hit me that this is very different. Why is this different? I've been missing out on this and this is what this looks like. This is what it feels like. This, This feels even better than tech felt already being in this environment where we can... I think I remember at the time writing something like, you know, we can compare shoes or we can admire each other's shoes as much as we can admire each other's code. And it's that sense of kind of all the parts of me coming together and whether the shoes are trainers or high heels is completely up to you, but it's all the elements of me coming together in a way that I might not have been able to do thus far in my technology journey. And did you feel a sense of anger about that, that to date you hadn't been in those environments that there was this gender bias that meant you didn't have the benefit of that kind of environment all day every day as you went about your work it was less anger and more it was sadness and then it was fear and it was sadness because I'd been in this minority the entire time And I hadn't realised that that was a shrinking minority. So at this conference, that's kind of what one of the keynotes ended up talking about, the fact that the number of women in technical fields up until that point, and that was 2012, the number of women in technical fields had been in freefall. And I thought, you know, I don't, who wants to be part of a shrinking minority? Like that's not the kind of technology is so amazing. There's so much I get to do, so many opportunities I get to, I get to have. Why should I be in a shrinking minority? And also, you know, to my unborn children, I don't want them to end up being in a situation where they feel like their mum's a weirdo just because I 
I'm a technologist, but also if I have a daughter, God forbid, you know, she ends up wanting to go on the same path as well. And she ends up feeling super isolated, you know, unless she gains my special skill of a lack of uh, perception of these things. So I think for me, it was, it was that kind of fear. And, and now what drives me is the fear that the more that technology becomes ubiquitous and the more that it seeps into all our parts of our lives, I'm fearful. I end up saying I'm kind of fearful that the robots will end up killing us. But it's ultimately this idea that, you know, if we're not intentional about who is building this technology that is driving so much of life and decisions that are being made and the way that we're governed and the way that societies operate, I'm kind of fearful of what will happen. I'm fearful of, you know, women becoming this second class in yet another way, but also fearful of the, oh, we didn't realise that allowing anyone to talk to anyone would cause so much harm to so many people. Like those small things, which if you just have different types of perspectives building technology, we wouldn't end up in those kind of dire situations of robots killing us. (laughs) And ultimately, you know, it's just... It's just another language. It's just another literacy, right? No one was born speaking English. We all learnt it. So why wouldn't you be able to learn programming? And why don't we see it like that? So that's my fear. That's what drives me. You've you've used this um, beautiful terminology about the products that are used by the many, by men and women, being built by the few. And you've just explained that problem then. Can you give us a few kind of granular examples about where you think it is in the technology we already have, that we can see that the kind of bias was built in, that the lack of women's perspectives have made a difference to the operation of the technology? So there, there's loads. And I think it, this is this is a problem across innovation and has been for a while. So there's, there's quite a lot to pull out and, and some of them are, are kind of digital and others aren't. So one that I end up talking about quite a lot is seatbelts. You know, seatbelts were developed by engineers to be safety devices as we moved from the horse to cars. You know, there were early teams of engineers who developed seatbelts that ultimately ended up killing women and children because they weren't built for the form of women or of children. And I, I used to say that as a historical example. And then if we look at the way that we measure safety and the crash test dummies that we have now and the rest of it, we still have that standard pin to the 50th percentile man the average man which means that if you're not 50th percentile man that means you might be a woman you might be 20th percentile man you might be 75th percentile man it means that the seatbelts still aren't built for you it's still not created it still doesn't fit well and it means that if you're in a crash you're much more likely to be harmed than 50th percentile man so that's that's a kind of old technology one that still pervades and still persists but you know there are countless examples of there's a, a major health tech brand a couple of years ago who discovered periods as you know in, in part of their business something that they they realized that quite a lot of their users had these things called periods and they decided to add a feature and they did their research they did their development they did the computer science they did the marketing they did everything and managed to release this period feature that only allowed you to have a period of 10 days <laughs> If you've ever met anyone that's had a period or if you've ever known anyone or maybe if you've ever had a period, you'll know that they, they kind of do their own thing. <laughs> so for us to build a feature that kind of restricts them in any way doesn't make sense. And of course, they had to backtrack. And, you know, there are many companies that have done this same thing just around periods alone. And Lord knows we've had them four centuries, <laughs> maybe even longer. <laughs> So, you know, that's a really, really basic one. But, you know, even even the example I was just giving about social media. So this idea that anyone can talk to anybody, 
at any time. If you've spoken to anyone that's ever had any kind of hate speech or ever been catcalled or ever just had unwanted communications, they would have told you that that idea was probably missing a few things. And that would have been obvious. Or that rating people hot or not might not be the best use of technology and there might be something else you want to rate rather than whether they're hot or not before you end up building a tool that ends democracy as we see it. So I think there's there's lots of things where often you just need someone else in the room. There just needed to be somebody slightly different in the room. Maybe we should try it this way. On the social media example, a couple of years ago, a woman brought was trying to raise funding for a social media platform that rather than being centred on the human being and on the ego of that person, actually centred on ideas, which I thought was a really interesting notion to say, actually, you control an idea, that's fine. But trolling a person is it's probably actually quite nice to have a platform that centres on ideas. Mm. And it was kind of bubbles and it, was actually, it actually looked quite cool. So it's just those kinds of examples. But there, there's many, you know, there's lots of things that you look at and you say, huh, who made that decision? Who was in the room when they discovered the periods only last 10 days? <laughs> You've talked about how the number of women in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, maths is criminally low, entering and staying in the field. Mm. Can you talk to us about the barriers you see there? I mean, you put it so beautifully when you talk about, you know, coding's just another form of literacy and that sounds very inviting, yet you must meet (laughs) women and girls all day, every day, who just shake their head and say, oh, maths, no, it's really hard, I was never good at it, or computers, you know, they're not my thing, oh, I can't imagine, you know, coding, and they've got an image in their head that the person who's good at all of those things is kind of the Hollywood movie techie nerd (laughs) bloke and that's most definitely Mm. not them. (laughs) Yeah, so it's the IT crowd or it's the Silicon Valley HBO or it's the, you know, insert, you know, whatever representation you've got of IT in your Hollywood or in your TV scene. There's a combination of things I think there's one kind of one that I always tie it back to is the social norm that we have around them, which you're touching on there, which is the representation that we have of these women in STEM. And I always like to go back to kind of the STEM history rather than the STEM history. So for all the dead white men that we can name that are scientists and are technologists and engineers, there were women like Hedy Lamarr. There were women like Ada Lovelace. There were women like Catherine Johnson. There are women who we should know as much as we know those men whose stories we should tell as much as we tell and by not telling those stories it's contributed to this idea this stereotype this norm that it's not something that women do and so then it's okay for you to say oh I don't get this tech thing or you know I'm too blonde to do maths or any of those other kind of insidious things that we hear so I think it, it ends up becoming a norm that not only women take on but that everyone takes on, whether it's teachers, whether it's parents, whether it's managers, all sorts of people then take on this, that it's not something that women do. And so then that spills out in policy, that spills out in behaviours, that spills out in even the storytelling we have now. Those tech titans or those lists of 100 people you should know in tech or whatever it is, it's always the same people who dropped out of the same course at the same university. Right? We're not, not telling a wider story of the thousands of people, the millions of people that work in technology around the world and the different kinds of people. We didn't all go to the same school and drop out of the same course at the same time. 
Some of us completed that course. Instead of going to Silicon Valley, having dropped out to invent something in your garage. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and there's so many stories that just haven't been told. And it gives that manager confidence to say, I'm not going to hire that woman because she's not going to know what she's talking about. Or it gives that teacher confidence to at the beginning of the semester or the beginning of term say to all the girls in his classroom that they're not going to get this anyway and they won't be here by the end of term and everyday sexism is is a great resource for just reading these things of you know physics classes maths classes my mum had that said to her by her maths teacher in secondary school and and it becomes a norm because it's then there's nothing to counter it with there's no example you can give. And any example you can give is basically someone who did their GCSEs or did their exams age two was a child prodigy and is completely unattainable and, and far reaching and has two heads and is very different from the rest of us. I think that's what ends up happening. And the people in the industry end up feeling empowered to further perpetuate those and to act within those. Well, she was a woman anyway. What would she have known about running this department? Or what would she have known about building technology around periods? <laughs> what would she have known? Tell me about the STEMETs because this is your grand endeavour and it's fantastic to try and change the things that we're talking about. So, yes, thank you. STEMETs is a non-profit and we operate across the UK and Ireland and our ethos is that everything we do is free for girls to attend. It's fun for them to attend and there's always food. And I always put that up there because everyone loves free food and that's how we entice them in. And then we hit them with the STEM knowledge and the inspiration. But we run cohort programs, so kind of extended experiences and interventions for girls and young women and non-binary young people as well. We run events for them to come and almost try before they buy, get to see industry up close, get to see academia up close, get to see entrepreneurship up close, because those are the kind of the kind of three tenets as we see them of, of the STEM industry. And then we also have online inspirational content platforms, which because of Corona, we've ended up kind of shifting and pushing more heavily on those at the moment. But it's things like the fact that our Twitter account, it's full of people that you should really know about who have made things that you use all the time, like a Hedy Lamar, like a Catherine Johnson, like a Stephanie Shirley, you know, the, the list is genuinely endless. And that we also are able to kind of bring girls together and allow them to have a peer group and a, and a real network of people that are able to encourage them, support them and go on that STEM journey with them. And what are you hoping for those girls? What's the future of tech for them that you would like to see? So for those girls, I'm hoping a genuine sense of fulfilment and of joy from becoming women in STEM. And I know it won't be for all of them. I'm not saying... You know, we, we still need bus drivers. We still need nurses. You know, we still need everyone to do what they need to in society. But I'm hoping that for each of, that for those girls, there's a higher probability or a higher percentage of them that end up enjoying their STEM journey, enjoying their STEM path, whatever that might look like, and that they go into it with the with a confidence and with a grander understanding of why that's their place, why they should be there and the power that it gives them to ensure that we don't have those robots that end up killing us. <laughs> and it's really funny because we've been running for seven years. It's been about 45,000 young people that have gone through programs wow. and been on platforms. And I'm already beginning to see from our alumni, they're hitting the industry, they're hitting certain issues. And the way they're dealing with it is, is so boss, it's so badass. <laughs> you know, I go and email at least once a month with one of them saying, do you know what, Amory, I've quit. Because they just, they just didn't understand. They just weren't listening. He said that to me in that meeting. And I said, this is not enough. So I'm starting my own business and I'm going to do this and I'm going to create this. And I've already got this funding and I've already, and I'm like, yeah, that's the cement I'm building. Someone who's either going to stay internally 
do the work, be amazing at it and be fulfilled or someone who's going to be able to say, do you know what? This isn't working, but I still need to be in technology. I still need to be driving this agenda and they're still going to be counted in STEM. They're still going to be innovating. They're going to do it on their terms. They're not going to do it on the terms of old. Well, that's a fantastic level of confidence because, of course, the risk always is, particularly for women, that if they hit a problem that they conclude, I'm the problem rather than Mm. the environment around Mm. me. For those STEMettes and for women in tech generally, what about the stage of life when people are thinking of having kids, do have kids, with the coronavirus and everything that we're seeing around the world as we record this podcast? Are you optimistic that maybe we're learning something about virtual and flexible work we can take with us to make the technology sector better for women and for men, but better for work-life balance when people do have caring responsibilities, whether that be young children or older relatives or whatever? Uh, Not fully. I've noticed or I've seen a lot of the commentary around the fact that so many people have opted for flexible working so many times for so many reasons, not just purely for being a woman and and having care responsibilities, but also, you know, for having disability or whatever it, you know, there are many reasons why lots of different types of people need flexible working and have needed it. And it's been really intriguing to see how quickly companies have pivoted, have shifted and have had to enable that. And the kind of, there have been teething problems in places. I think at this point, we're almost seeing a replication of kind of presenteeism, but using digital tools in a way that's worrying. So with my work for the Institute for Future of Work, we kind of look at this a lot of algorithms being used to manage workers. And the fact that, you know, I I think Zoom even had to switch off the feature that automatically allowed you to track how long someone was online or their attention was on a particular call. So I think there's the possibility that things could go either way. And I'm not yet seeing enough people that are saying, do you know what, you're working from home during a crisis, you're not just working flexibly. And we're going to be understanding about your care responsibilities and the other responsibilities that you have at home. In fact, I've a friend of mine actually tweeted early on in the lockdown about an engineering company that had kind of said, well, you know, you've all got wives, so all the women are fine to kind of go look after the children and we're going to expect more from you, the men working here. And that's something that was said in kind of 2020 at the beginning of lockdown in an engineering firm. So I think these things can go both ways. The positive is that flexible is now, and home working is now more understandable, but it doesn't necessarily mean we'll get all the benefits. The other people to think about are those who don't necessarily have the resources or the technology to be able to access all of this. And this is something we've had to think about. We're still thinking about quite a lot for STEMETs, which is that it's a certain type of young person who's got access to their own digital device and to be able to explore, especially at a time like this. We've had girls on calls and we can hear their mum yelling in the background because the other children are being naughty and they they don't have a, their own room, for example, to be in a quiet place to be able to attend a call quietly. And those are the girls that can even join in, right, rather than aside from the ones who don't have the right kind of digital devices. So I think we, we need to be just more conscious of this is exacerbating the digital divide maybe more than if we hadn't had to discover all of this in a crisis. So there's still lots of work to be done things to learn. I do want to talk to you about another aspect of the women in tech journey, which is, and your STEMettes might well be people who are doing this right now, 
the people who have come up with the great idea and in order to take it from being a great idea into being something that changes lives around the world, they need investment and they need venture mm-hmm. capital. And of course, this is the story of Silicon Valley, all those well-known tales, the nerd in the garage that comes up with the great idea and then attracts a lot of venture capital. But when we actually look at who's in charge of venture capital in the United States, to give one example, only 12% of the people in the US who decide where venture capital funding should go are women. And in terms of who receives the funds, currently only 2.7% goes to companies founded solely by women. How big a barrier do you think that is for the technology future we want to see? It's a huge barrier. Thankfully, there is work being done. I think the 12% is probably the highest number I've heard in a while, actually, (laughs) of that kind of the the VCs. But I think we know it's a huge barrier because it's what is invested in is is what is able to grow. You kind of need to to add that fuel to the fire, in essence, for it to be able to, to scale in a meaningful way. And there are a few groups or a few VCs, there's there's a, a kind of a fashion that's hopefully going to take off and become the norm that's now saying, you know, we're going to do a little bit more due diligence and we're going to, you're going to lose out on funding, basically, if you don't show more of your inclusivity and diversity credentials. It's definitely a huge problem. I think it's it's one where, again, those, those prejudices and those norms play in where I've been in sessions before with funders where they'll assume that either the man that's in the meeting with me knows more about the technology or they'll assume that what I'm doing is teaching the girls to, to do beauty startups, for example. You know, I've never had to raise funding because of the nature of, the, of my business model, but there are lots of people that I know, lots of female entrepreneurs who have been kind of propositioned in these meetings. There's all kinds of awful things that are happening. And because it's such a closed door process in many cases, it does become this murky world where, you know, there aren't many rules. People are kind of just going on their hunch, going on their own biases and, and doing what they feel like doing. it. So I think things like crowdfunding, there are, there are other uh, avenues for investment that are opening up. And the other thing that I'm super keen on or very excited about is the idea of that shift of wealth, because VC ultimately is someone that has a big fund. They're investing that that money in some way. And you've got to think, who are the investors? Who are the people that are accumulating those amounts of funds to be able to invest them? So female investors, empowering women and giving them the right kind of wealth to be able to make those decisions means that then we don't actually necessarily need to depend on the old guard to do those kinds of things we can invest ourselves we can you know build wealth be paid right <laughs> so we've got that money to invest ourselves because we know that a period product or a menopause product is actually quite useful whereas men sometimes have to ask their wives about pitches which is always a, a again a unique phrase that you might hear on a kind of vc bingo <laughs> sheet <laughs> but no you're right it's it's a massive it's it's massive it's it's important it's very important I can't say that change is happening quickly enough, but there is change in some ways afoot. So I'm, I'm positive. I'm optimistic. Longer term, not short term. You in your own podcast tell some real life stories about women in tech and what they've done to forge successful careers. Now, here's a very hard question. Can you share just a couple of examples for us? It's probably like, oh, no, I can't pick the top couple, but some stories that you've told that you think women would be very inspired to hear. The first episode that went out was actually a lady called Beth from GCHQ, which I think till 
date is one of my, it's kind of one of the biggest stories, one of the most interesting journeys to hear about the kind of cyberspace and women working in cyber. So that's something that often gets left behind and we kind of jump directly to kind of product development and software development and coding, whereas actually cyber and protection and security is super important. So hearing from Beth about her journey into cyber, about the fact that actually when you talk about these people who don't see themselves as technical, you know, she had quite a unique journey. She didn't study uh, STEM itself and ended up, has ended up as a director, deputy director at our government communication headquarters, but essentially they're the, the kind of digital arm that sits between MI5 and MI6. I think hearing stories from her about, you know, how she got there, what they do, the fact that it's actually quite, it's more regular than I think the movies would tell you, but that there's a lot that they, there's a lot of complex things that they're working on. And it, it helps you remember that technology is not just about the innovation and the building the new things, but it's also about securing things and keeping people safe which I think gets lost. So Beth's story was an amazing story. There's also a lady called Venita, who is otherwise known as Rocket Woman, who worked at the European Space Agency <laughs> on skin suits. So these are uh, suits that help astronauts kind of maintain their body structure and shape and kind of a good physiology, I guess, when they're out in space. So there's there's lots of stories. There's lots of different types of people that we've had on. There's even the founder of Borrow My Doggy, <laughs> which is a great Borrow platform we have doggy. here for kind of, <laughs> yeah, which is a great platform we have here for dog sitting. And it's ended up being a kind of a way to build communities around dogs. They've had Borrow My Doggy weddings before of people that have met because they've borrowed dogs and they've ended up getting kind of married. So the STEM is quite diverse anyway, but we've had quite a diversity of women. One of the coolest ones, one of the coolest things that I still reference all the time was a professor, Professor Maya Panchik at Imperial, who has been working on deep fakes and artificial intelligence for decades. We ended up having a conversation about deep fakes and, and why they ended up creating them, which was not to fool people and get, you know, Barack Obama to say things he didn't say, but to actually train autistic children on facial expressions to be able to understand emotions from the facial expressions of people. But we also ended up talking about how she thinks we'll end up having brain-to-brain communications in the future. So kind of brainwave to brainwave, which means that you then don't need to be restricted by language and words, but it also means that people won't be able to lie anymore. Wow. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So some great stories out there. And I can assure you the Australians listening will have recognised MI5 and MI6. After all, we watch the Bond movies too. But from what you're telling me, I don't think there actually is a James Bond. That's a big reveal. <laughs> We're going to move now to the set of questions we use to conclude these podcasts. And what I always do is give our guests a fact to respond to. So your fact is, according to research published by PwC in 2017, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, only 27% of female students say they would consider a career in technology, compared with 61% of males, and only 3% say it is their first choice. 78% Mm. of these students could not name a famous female working in technology. Mm-hmm. What do those statistics not, make you think? Not surprised. Those, those statistics are why I do what I do. So hopefully we're shifting. I mean, in, in essence, we are shifting that. I think it's 
It's a great shame. Technology is so amazing. It's such a brilliant place to be. And I think it's it's the framing of it. This is what I end up saying. You know, if you ask the 97% who didn't say they want to be in technology, whether they want to be creative in their career or whether they want to help people and be someone that makes the world a better place, that number would shoot up considerably. And I always make the joke that even if you want to be an evil genius who makes the world a a worse place, technology is also the place to be. We just need to do a better better job of, of framing it. Like this is about solving problems. It's about solving problems. It's about being creative with the way you solve problems. And ultimately, most of the things you've seen, whether it's shoes or a laptop or whatever it is, has been dreamt up by someone. And technology has been what's enabled that to become a reality. It's the framing and it's also who have, who have been before. If it's the Stephanie Shirley, you know, there's so many, if it's Mary Tharp, there's so many women that we should be able to point to and we should have on the tip of our tongues. Hedy Lamar is the, the biggest one, I think, for anyone listening. She was a Hollywood actress. When you think of the character Betty Boop, that was who it was modelled on. She was the most beautiful woman in her time. And she was a keen physicist and, and invented things on the weekends. And everyone in Hollywood told her to shut up and just look pretty and read her scripts. And she ended up co-inventing something called frequency hopping spread spectrum technology, which many of you may not have heard of. A lot of you will have heard of Wi-Fi. A lot of you will have heard of Bluetooth. And that's the technology that underpins it. So we have wireless communication because of the Hollywood actress, Hedy Lamar. Who knows that? Why do we not thank Hedy every time we connect to the Wi-Fi? You know, Wi-Fi has been added to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Why is Hedy not a bigger deal in our culture, given how important it is? Home is where you connect to Wi-Fi automatically, and Hedy is the reason why you're able to do that. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? <laughs> As a technologist, anyone, I think anyone can identify with this. I think it's any time that someone doesn't believe that I know what I'm talking about. So I, I talk about this guy called Felix, <laughs> probably more than I should who I was used to work on certain projects with, who just didn't really believe that I knew what I was talking about. And it would always end up costing him time, costing the company money, and it'd end up being really embarrassing for him when three weeks later, 45 minutes later, he'd realised that, yeah, the, the flag I said was in the database is actually in the database. And the contrived system he's just created, he didn't need to waste three hours making it. He could have just listened to Amory and done it. So I think I think the biggest misogyny is always that people don't believe that I know what I'm talking about or don't fully understand that I'm sat at the table. I'm not taking notes or the intern, because I'm a lot younger than them and maybe don't always necessarily look like I should maybe be at those board meetings. So that's always an interesting one of, yeah, no, I'm not going to make you tea because I don't know how to make tea. And I kind of need to... <laughs> lead the next part of this meeting so if you'd like to leave me alone and just listen that would be great (laughs) if you had all the power all the power for a day what's the one thing you would change for women i would create compulsory shared caring leave Uh ah change dynamics in families about who cares for children change everywhere about who cares for whoever, right? So who cares for the elderly relative? Who cares for children? Who cares for whoever you're caring for? It, it's compulsorily shared. So you can't pass the buck. If you're someone who doesn't have caring responsibilities, you might be a manager who has people in your team that have caring responsibilities. And let's see how you discriminate against the women when the men also have to leave early to go and pick up the kids from school. Or they also have to go and check in on an elderly relative. Let's see how that plays out for you. Love it. Virginia Woolf says, 
The extraordinary woman depends on the ordinary woman. It is only when we can measure the way of life and experience made possible to the ordinary woman that we can account for the success or failure of the extraordinary woman. Anne-Marie says? Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Elegantly done. (laughs) It's true. I mean, she's she's covered all bases there, but... I mean, it, it takes back to even things like the digital divide. Like we have the same thing. I don't want to run a program if it's going to cost the girls £15 to participate because not everybody has £15 for that. That's why we do the food. That's, that's why we have vegan sweets at our events. We love sweets. We, have a, we actually have a sweets partner called Candy Kittens who send us sweets for every single event. And gone are the days when we used to have Haribo's and then we'd have to have chocolate biscuits for the other girls. And then we'd, it's like, no, no, no. Sweets that everyone can have. If you're kosher, if you're halal, if you're whatever you might be, you can all have them. So I think the idea of the ordinary woman gets left behind in so many discussions. Like if it doesn't work for her, it doesn't, it's not working for anybody. You, you've not created the right system. You've not created the right process. You're only helping yourself. Or you don't pretend that you're helping everybody. What does ordinary mean anyway? I always joke, it's a mathematician's joke. I always joke, we can't even agree on one average. So what does what does ordinary even mean? Yes, exactly. That's my rebuttal to, to Virginia Woolf, not that she can defend herself, but there you go. Uh, Virginia has got a quote for every season. I'm sure we'll be able to find one where she explores the meaning of ordinary. Uh, but I have very much enjoyed this conversation with an extraordinary woman. Anne-Marie, thank you for participating in the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Hello, listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection to find the person you can rely on, the one that's there every week, month, or year, and always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With ACAST podcast ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie, and avoid those red flags and time wasters. Your ads can communicate with them in the most intimate way possible. A one-on-one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym, or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started.